Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Like, I mean, uh, somebody said, you know, if you want, if you want to get a, a job as a journalist, go to the day school, go work an oil rig, <laughs> come back after five, or go join the French Foreign Legion, come back after five years. You look at Jimi Hendrix, and okay, now he was kind of a blues musician. And if he stayed in America, he would have been just one more American blues musician playing in the south side of Chicago, like, you know, like Southern Seals or something like that. But he actually went to London, where there weren't any you know, black blues musicians, American black blues musicians. And then he kind of like matched up that kind of American blues thing with that kind of trippy psychedelic, you know, like Anglo-Saxon London thing and created something completely unique. Where, you know, I mean, that's, where if he just stayed in Seattle, you know, stayed in Seattle, he would just end up playing dive bars. This is Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. I'm here to help you find the courage to take your own path. We have hit another milestone on the podcast. We've surpassed a quarter of a million downloads. So thank you so much for sharing with your friends and for upvoting the show on Product Hunt. We still need your reviews to keep the show growing. If you've been listening for a while, if the show has helped you in some way, please rate the show on iTunes. I'm just asking for a rating, not even a review. If you want to write a review, that's even better. But just go to cadavy.net slash review, click on write a review, and then click on a star rating, and then you're done. It really helps bring in new listeners and it tells me that you want the episodes to keep coming. Today's guest is a hero of mine who helped me find my own path. It was 2004. I was sitting in a gray cubicle in Nebraska, and I discovered a little PDF on the internet called How to Be Creative. And I read it, and it was one of the most moving and inspiring things that I had ever read. Like, you know, sometimes you read something and, and you're like, Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking, except I didn't have the words for it. This little PDF was like that for me. It was subversive and it was edgy and it was bold and it spoke to the nonconformist part of me that wanted to live outside of the template if he only had the courage. And this little PDF had these brilliant little cartoons in it. They were all the same format. They were small. They were very small. And it turns out they were all drawn on the back of business cards. Hugh McLeod the man behind this PDF had been drawing these cartoons on the back of business cards for seven years by this point. And I came across his blog called Gaping Void and I found more bold thinking and brilliant cartoons there. And it was one of the blogs that inspired me to start my blog in 2004. And I even put it in my blog role. You see, there was no Twitter or Facebook. So that's how you would connect people and ideas. You just put a link to their blog on your blog. And that's how you would say, you know, listen to this person. This person has things to say. Since then, Hughes cartoons have been seen everywhere. You've probably seen them before if you're not already a fan of his. He's built a consulting business around the cartoons. He helps companies define and express their culture. Companies like Microsoft, Cisco, Volkswagen, Zappos, eBay, and Intel. Hugh even illustrated a book with Seth Godin, who I'm sure you've heard of. So I'm very excited to be connecting you with Hugh McLeod's ideas today. Listen to this interview to discover how to overcome perfection paralysis in your work. 
How do you discover your creative DNA? How do you fill your work with the universal truths of human experience to make it resonate with others? And ultimately, how and why do work that serves others? And before I get to HumaClab, I want to tell you about the very first time that I had to really act like a professional. I was in college and I had done a group project with some friends and it was a real logo for a real company. And it turned out that company wanted to pay us for the logo with real money. So they asked us to send them an invoice. An invoice? What? I think invoice is one of those words that just seems unnecessarily complicated. They should just call it like a money slip or a money request. Really, they should call it a money order, but that's already taken by something that's equally confusing. Of course, as college students masquerading as professionals, we just pretended to know what they were talking about, and then we scrambled to figure out what an invoice was and how to make one. Let's just say it was complicated and scary, and it was every bit as tough as making that logo was. And today, there's FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes creating and sending invoices, or money requests, if you will, super easy and super fast. You don't have to worry about messing anything up, and you can create an invoice in a few seconds. It's great for freelancers, consultants, or small businesses. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial for listeners of Love Your Work. Just go to kadavi.net slash FreshBooks and claim your 30-day free trial of FreshBooks. That's kadavi.net slash FreshBooks for your free 30-day trial. And now, Hugh McLeod. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, around Christmas time, 1997, I, I was a cafe in Chicago, I forgot my sketchbook, and I, I had always kept a sketchbook back then, I didn't have anything to draw on, I usually, I usually drew my sketchbook after work at the cafe, and I didn't have anything to, to draw with, so I had some business cards on me. And I drew them, and I, that was almost that was 19 years ago. So it just to me, it just got kind of it was just like something something neat to do, you know. Uh, it seemed like, uh, and then a week later, almost like a, a week later, I moved to New York City and lived out of a suitcase for the next two or three months. And um, you know, I didn't have a studio. I didn't have really much of a living situation. So, and also new to the city. So I walked around a lot. So I wanted, I wanted an art form that was, you know, you, you could kind of just carry around with you. That was still an object as opposed to one more page in the sketchbook, but that actual thing you could, you know, frame or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 it just seemed to work for me, you know, because, the small size means you have to focus. Means you have to make up your mind about what you want to do with that. You know, if you got a piece of paper, uh, so I say, forty-eight inches by forty-eight inches, the you know the options are way more, you know, boundless, <laughs> literally. Um, and so I don't know. It was, just, it was just a nice kind of compact thing, you know, where. You know, you, you keep you keep your entire studio inside of a small shoulder bag. To me, uh, that that kind of uh, 
was very appealing. And it kind of, it kind of, uh, it was kind of almost like a form of minimalism. Yeah. And, and it seems like if you have big canvases or big work and you had a studio you were working in or something like just, it seems like that would be like a lot of pressure every time you started a new piece. Yeah. It all of a sudden it becomes a thing because you know, you spent $400 on art supply. It can't just be a piece of junk. You know, it has to be serious. It has to be, you know, it has to be worth it. Quote unquote, you know, it has to be, it has to have some kind of, uh, you know, kind of justification to exist. Whereas a, a doodle on the back of the, on the back of business card has no reason to exist at all. It's a silly little thing. So it doesn't matter if it's good or not. Therefore you just go on with it. You don't have to worry about how good it is. You just do it. And it seems like that would give you permission to go ahead and do some cartoons that are not so, that are not so good. And then, and you, and to do a lot of them and then have some that turn out really, really well. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And even do stuff that isn't that good, but you like them anyways. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, with, with a painting, you can't say, well, it's a pretty shit painting, but I spent th- you know three months on it anyways. You know? yeah, <laughs> no, it has to be a masterpiece. You know what I mean? It has to, you know, it, to, to me, I, it, also at the time, you got to remember, I was still in the advertising game. Actually, that was a pretty good two years in the advertising business when I was in New York. Um, yeah, I had a day job, an official day job. I had no interest in bohemia, no interest in being an artist, quote unquote. No interest in the lifestyle whatsoever. I wanted an office and a job and a, you know, I wanted to wear a, a collar to work. <laughs> and, you know, and when, when the client was in the office, I wanted to put on a tie. You know what I mean? I wasn't, you know, I, I wanted a real job. I didn't want like some hipster thing. And, um, uh, and so I could do that. So I could do the business card thing outside of that without it bleeding into the rest of my, my existence. Whereas, you know, if you're a sculptor, that kind of takes over your life. <laughs> you make a film, you put your life on hold to make it usually. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with a, a sculpture, you've got to get a space to work on it and you have to buy material, say it's a block of marble or something film you've got to get a bunch yeah. of people together and, and secure locations yeah, and yeah most of it's about the making not the actual making and you know and, and also with the film you have to use somebody else's money which is appalling because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know well and also with, 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 with something like film it's like just making a couple seconds of film is such an arduous process like you were saying that it's not it's not so much I don't, I don't know exactly how you said it but it was something about it's not so much about the making like it's very little about the idea. Like the idea happens when you're writing the screenplay. Right. Well, yes. I mean, there's a lot to be, well, I, well, to me anyway, a lot of about it is about the, is about the film, not the actual film. If that makes any sense. It's like about the making, not the actual making. I mean, a, a film product usually lasts between the proper film product lasts between, you know, two, two to four years. And you're only filming that for about three or four weeks. <laughs> and then you're another, you know, a month or two in the editing thing. And the rest of the time you're asked, you know, you're, you're raising the money, finding, finding the cast, hiring the crew, uh, you know, keeping the investors on board. And then, you know, the whole thing where you have to release it and, you know, go to con and go to, you know, 
you know, do the TV circuit. It's, it's a lot of work. And, and, and that's fine. But I mean, is that what you want to be doing? <laughs> right. If that makes any sense. And, and so uh, one, of my, one, of, one of my best friends is actually a very famous film director. Uh, we were friends since we were kids and he, he made the most successful independent movie of 2016, actually. Uh, his name is David McKenzie. He directed a movie called Hell or High Water. It's a brilliant movie. Oh, cool. And I've, I've been, and I've been, you know, friends with him for years and I love him to pieces and nothing but admiration for him. Um, but I say I admire him, but I don't envy him. If that makes any sense. See what he's had to go through to get those films off the ground. And I mean, yeah, maybe there's something in, in your respective creative DNA that makes the film stuff work for him and, and for you, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody has their own, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I love novels. I can't see why anybody on God's earth would want to write one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, oh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, terrible process. Arduous, not terrible, but arduous, I'd say. So, you know, but, you know, we all find our own niche. And I think as a young person, what you do is, you know, you try your head at different things, painting, poetry, music, I don't know. Documentary making, documentarying, was it document, documentary making, you know, whatever, theater, whatever. And that's uh, something sticks. Like it sounds like this business card thing obviously stuck for yeah. you. Did you did it become like a compulsion drawing them or how did, how did the ball really get it rolling? Wasn't, no, it wasn't, well, I, I always drew pictures anyways. It was kind of like, uh, I said, yeah, this will do. I think I'll do more of these. Thank you very much. But because of my situation, I didn't need any approval to do them or not. It was like, you know, it was like Penguin just gave me a large advance or, you know, Hollywood just gave me a large, you know, wrote me a check. It's more like this, you know, this gruntled copywriter in New York, you know, sitting in a bar. <laughs> did, you know, you ever, remember back then, did you ever look at yourself <laughs> as you were doing them and kind of say, gosh, what am I doing? This doesn't make any sense for me to do this. Did did you ever have any sort of self naysaying in that way? No, I said I I, I could see why it looks stupid from the outside, but fuck them, I don't care. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. I can see I can see why somebody would look like somebody would say, well, why are you doing this when you could be you know doing stuff in the New Yorker or you know working in the bank or you know why are you doing this when you could be you know watching the playoffs on TV like everybody else, you know. Well, that, that's like, uh, I always ask a question like that because someone like yourself who has broken out of, uh, broken out of the, the regular template of doing things, I think that a lot of people have that potential and they just, they're never able to break out of it. And a lot of it is because they, they, they doubt their own motivations or they doubt their own yeah. passion. And they're, they're afraid of being embarrassed. I mean, that's a valid fear. Yeah. So I was just curious, was there a time when you had that and, and how did, and if so, did, how did you change? Uh, no, I don't, did I ever have that? I'm with the business cards, never had that with a business card. I've tried other things, which, you know, you know, I once, I once, uh, this is years ago, tried my hand at, at, uh, imposter, uh, screenwriting and I had imposter syndrome for the very first sentence. I said, no, I can't do this. It's overwhelming. Uh, I tried writing a novel 20 years ago. That's awful. You know, that's okay. 
Um, it sounds like to yeah, you that I, like the big the big projects that you have to dedicate years to don't suit the way that you like to create, and that having the business cards. Yeah. Because you can make a lot of them and you, you don't have to worry about messing, messing it up that that suited you. Yeah. Better. Is that yeah. accurate? I'll go, uh, well, I started thinking this the other day, you know, we're talking about as soon as something or somewhere or someone becomes a thing, that thing loses its power. Right. Mm-hmm. Where so so when I was a kid, people moved to Austin because it was cool. But now people move to Austin because Austin's now become a thing. That makes any sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Austin, but I mean, well, it's a and, it's not it's not the the cheap bohemian paradise that it that it once yeah, was. Was right, uh, and so. If you're if you're just doing something just because it's a thing, then you're probably not the first person to think of that. Therefore, you're going to be in trouble. Whereas the business cards were no thing; they weren't a thing at all. They were a stupid thing. <laughs> they were a silly thing. There's no real way anybody in the right mind would think of doing it. So I did it. A more sensible thing would to be: oh, I had to, you know, move to Soho, not Soho, but move to Brooklyn, and you know, join the Art, fine art scene and, you know, do gallery shows and, you know, throw a bit of string on the gallery floor and call it something profound, you know? I mean, I think they call it like barrier to entry. You know, when something's a thing, then everybody yeah. wants to be in it and there's this barrier to entry. But then if you can go, you can go play around and, and, and create your own thing, then, then you have suddenly have like a barrier, barrier to entry all around you and that thing. Hey, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny. I, I had a, a very aha moment in like my last year of college at the University of Texas, where I was in somebody's office. I can't remember who, a professor or a counselor or whatever. And there's a stack of resumes on, his, on the desk. And I started asking about the resumes. And I said, do you mind to check them out? I looked, at, I looked at the resumes to see, you know, see what kids were up to. And they're all the same. It was like a stack of about 300 of them. I mean, we're talking about a, re, a full ream of paper. It's like, you know, two, an inch high. As all the same story. Hi, I'm 22 years old. I'm a Bachelor of Arts in whatever, majored in history, majored in communications, you know, member of Kappa Phi Beta, member of Gamma Gamma Delta, uh, you know, just a list of the usual stuff that kids do at college, you know. And they're all wearing blazers and looking, you know, pristine and respectable, and, but they all look the same. You know, I thought, well, it is this you, you, the way to get a job is you put yourself, you, 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 print out, you make yourself a resume like that one and put it in a stack of 300. Well, that way you have a, a one in a 300 chance <laughs> of getting the results you want. And I know that anything under 50, 50, 50 is, is uh, bad odds. <laughs> so 0.3% is really, 0.33% is not even terrible odds, you know. So you had to think about uh, you had to think about not being that person who has nothing else to go for go going for him except he's a you know he's a one more one more face in a pile of resumes that are all the same. This is something I think is 
really powerful about curiosity and something that I struggled with a lot as I had my own doubts was being curious about disparate things that didn't seem like they had any really practical application. But I ended oh, up pursuing totally. them because I couldn't help it. And and then you end up someplace where nobody can touch you because those curiosities converge. Sorry, you were, you were having a right, yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, uh, somebody said, you know, if you want, if you want to get a, a dog's journalist, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't go to J school, go work an oil rig, <laughs> come back after five or go join the French foreign legion, come yeah. back after five years. You know, so you, so you actually have some kind of uh, grit of the, uh, there's one guy called Alan, a Scottish dude I knew in London years ago. And that's exactly what he did. He, uh, he went and worked on an oil rig then came back to London and, got a, and became the guy to write about uh, oil issues, petroleum issues. So anybody on the, so anytime something news happened, he'd be the guy you saw on the uh, TV saying, this is, this is what's up people. He became the guy you want to hear about the oil business. Yeah, he, then he has the credibility. But, he's, he's, he's worked in the oil business and it's not yeah. just, not just somebody who studies it and, um, yeah, yeah, about it. yeah. So, so, so he had a certain kind of grit to it. He had some grit in his uh, his oyster. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, whereas somebody else would have just gone to J school and you know gotten the checklist and you know picked up all the boxes, not realizing there's twenty thousand other people who did the same thing. I got to go back to this grit, grit in the oyster thing. I just, that finally just popped in my brain though. Is it, so then that's where the pearls come from, right? Cause there's some grit in the exactly. oyster. Oh, well, so yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or, but, but to differentiate yourself is really hard when you're 18, unless you know, you're an Olympic athlete. But even then, if you don't win gold, you're nothing. <laughs> you think you're special, then you get to the Olympic Village, and then unless you win gold, yeah, I think you have to kind of like listen to your. You have to listen to this this mischievous little inner voice that you have that's telling you to do these things that that don't make any sense within the template that everybody's trying to get you to live in, and that that takes a lot of courage when you're 18 yeah. or something. If you well, haven't well, been I mean, instilled you at, with you, that, you look at you look at Jimi Hendrix, and okay. Now he was kind of a blues musician, and if he stayed in America, he would have been just one more American blues musician playing in the South Side of Chicago, like you know, like Sun Seals or something like that. But he actually went to London, where there weren't any you know black blues musicians, American black blues musicians, and then he kind of like matched up that kind of American blues thing with that kind of trippy psychedelic, you know, like Anglo-Saxon London thing. And created something completely unique. Where, you know, I mean, that's, where if he just stayed in Seattle, you know, stayed in Seattle, he would just end up playing dive bars or playing, you know, whatever, you know, played, played for Motown or something like that. Sure. In the session trying to compete Motown. with all the same people who are trying to do that same thing. Well, much like, you know, you as, an, as a, an artist, instead of trying to do the Soho thing and the gallery thing, you created your own right. paradigm. Right. Because if I created somebody else's paradigm, you know, I mean, you've ever been to an art show in New York 
it's the guy who owns the gallery, the artist, you know, the artist mom, the artist dad, maybe one or two patrons of the, of the gallery. And then, and then 50 or 60 young people who want, who want the next, the next spot that opens, you know what I mean? And you go, well, that's great. But if you just hoping to be picked out of a, of a group of 50 randomly, then there's no, you have no control over that. So why do it? And yeah, in that situation, you've, you've got to, you have to impress those gatekeepers. And then you put yourself in a situation where you got your art out there. You got your your cartoons out there. And then it was just, it was just a matter of finding those, you know, thousand people in a global audience who resonated. Turning up in the New Yorker, the New Yorker office every day and begging for exposure. Yeah. Sending cartoons to Bob Mankoff and, uh, yeah. And saying, you know, please can yeah. I please sir, make it make it my turn. Pick me this time, please. You know, and it was like and I just said, Well no, I need uh, I need a critical mass of X thousand people giving me money every year and I'm in business. Okay, how do we make that happen? So how did the sharing of the cartoons happen? Was did the blog come first or the cartoons come first or was it all at the same time? The blog came much later, like five years later. Oh, okay. No, what happened? I had a big old stack of cartoons. I actually put these online. And, uh, you know, blogs were cheap, were cheap and easy. And I couldn't afford to pay a webmaster or whatever you want to call, you know. And you got to remember, this is the era where, you know, when you, when you put to a website, it played music at you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Run Flash. You know, it was like. Oh, I remember. What 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 year did your site first go up? Uh, 2001. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so, and, and what, then I kind what of. technology, did you just throw up HTML pages? There wasn't, there weren't like CMSs then. Okay. There was, it was, it was hand built. I had a friend of mine who was a bit of a webmaster and he built me something for a lot of money. And the first two and then 2004, I switched over to uh, movable type. Yeah, I, I and then did a I moved over, and then I moved over to WordPress about three years after that, and then you know, and then uh, and then I yeah you know, I spent that decade you know so we say 2004 to about 2010 being internet famous, which is I suppose not bad, uh, and then. And in 2010, I got together with my now business partner, Jason Corman, and we said, well, you know, instead of me just being a freelance celebrity or whatever, celebrity freelancer, uh, why don't we just turn this into a real business? And so that's what we did. And now we, you know, we do a lot of stuff for corporate work. We do a lot of uh, internal cultural work and, you know, motivational posters and we do social objects. You know, we, 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 may, we, 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 and we have consultancy business and we try to, affect culture on the inside. And that, that's like a business thing. And then, and then I have the kind of art thing, which I kind of keep close, but not, you know, but also peripheral depending on, depending on the day. So when you so first put the stuff on, put the, put the cards online, was, were there any role models? Was there anybody that you were following? Like what, what drove, what even gave you the idea to put it up? Well, I had the idea. Well, I have, you know, I got all these cartoons. I think they're rather good. I just put them online. Uh, 
the blogging community back then was full of a lot of really smart, connected people. So really switched on people. So that was kind of enjoyable, you know, while, you know, the, re- you know, the rest of back then, a lot of the, the web was either, you know, trolling or cyber sex, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's it kind of, it's kind of awful. <laughs> and, uh, but here's the, the blogging scene was much more kind of civilized and smart and funny, you know, both smart, funny, civilized, interesting people. So, uh, you know, as opposed to leaving, you know, trolling comments on fuckcompany.com or, you know, you know, or whatever the, whatever the hell they get up to in Yahoo chat rooms, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember I, oh, I started right. my blog, May 31st, 2004, and uh, okay. pretty sure Gaping Void, your your blog was in my blog role at the time. If you remember, every, yeah. if anybody listening remembers blog roles, and I the, do. The O might have been a zero. Then was that possible? What? The O wasn't a zero. Maybe. Okay. I thought I thought I remembered the O being a zero in Gaping Void. No, Gaping Void. Gape, oh, no, it was just uh, no. The word Gaping Void came. I did a cartoon when I was a kid, and the, the tagline was "Gape into the void." And uh, very fun cartoon. Yeah, that's right. Right, it was somebody and was selling. It was a video machine, you know, like an arcade machine, you know, like a uh, Space Invaders, you know, "Gape into the void," twenty-five cents. <laughs> you know, instead of like shooting Martians, you have or Space Invaders, you. Uh, mm. You're just going to gaping to the existential hell that you have creation. I want to dissect that. I want to dissect that. Is that sort no, of... But, but what happened was gaping, void, gaping to the void.com was too long, so I just shortened the gaping void. Yeah. I always wondered. But that's an interesting cartoon. That, that is, there's something very... Uh, it, it's clear that you have a, a well-defined worldview through your cartoons. Okay. I, think that, I think that a lot of people who don't... Who who wonder like oh how is you know how is how is he making this work? It, it seems to me like you have a certain understanding of the way that the world works and of of existence, and that you're speaking to these these common themes of yeah uh, of existence and yeah, yeah. Of, of death death and sex and <laughs> and and you know vanity and <laughs> yeah it's funny my my favorite my favorite my favorite uh, my, fa- my favorite uh, quote right now is, uh, what's it? Sick transit, Gloria Mundi, which is Latin for so passes the glory of the world. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's a Roman way of saying all is vanity. <laughs> Another one of my favorite phrases. And so you kind of, uh, you kind of, you know, you kind of see everything at one point being a big fucking deal. And then, week later not so much and you kind of go well and we all do it you know we all like you know oh my god you know it's gonna be lunch in three days oh my god or you know or whatever's gonna or we have a big big presentation with a client on friday bf you know bfd big fucking deal you know but everything everything's kind of like have these all these kind of short-term uh short-term big deals going on and uh, that proves, you know, and we kind of we're like we're like uh, Tarzan swinging from one BFD to another big BFD. <laughs> well, it's hard when, when you're in, you know, when you're in the moment of any sort of BFD, that uh, you know, it's hard to like imagine. Okay, this is 
you know, someday it'll be years from now or, you know, someday I'll be dead or, or all these different things yeah. you can do to, 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 to reframe it and make you realize that the BFD is not such a BFD. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you still gotta, you still gotta make a rent. You still gotta get on a life. Yeah. So you can't just say, you can't, I mean, unless you want to just go be a monk somewhere, but then, but then what do you do when you get there? You know? <laughs> so it's nice to have something to do. Uh, and I think, you know, now that I'm older, it's like uh, I find I find ambition for its own sake counterproductive. For that makes any sense. Ambition for its own sake counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And whereas you know, I'm whereas now at the point in my life where okay, I've got you know I got to draw more pictures and say yes to my wife all the time, you know, <laughs> obey my wife, <laughs> look after my family and, you know, draw more pictures and, you know, you know, respect the people I do business with and everything's fine. But no, like, there's no kind of like, I'm not waiting for the phone call from Hollywood. I'm not waiting for the phone call from wherever, you know, I'm not waiting to be picked. You know what I mean? I'm just like, eh. mm-hmm. you know, I'm more of a, you know, I just got to do my work and hopefully uh, don't waste any time in the process. We're going to take a quick break. I want to talk to you about your potential. I want to talk to you about the work that is inside of you, just waiting to come out. I know how it feels. It's how I felt when I was sitting in a gray cubicle in Nebraska 13 years ago. What did I do? I opened up a browser and I started a blog. It was my playground. It was where I practiced my web design skills and my writing skills. A year later, I had a job in Silicon Valley. Six years later, I had a book deal. If you want to reach your potential, you need a place to play. That's why I put together a tutorial, a step-by-step tutorial on how to register a domain, get a host, and set up your very own WordPress blog. It's easy, and I've laid out all the steps with clearly marked screenshots. Just go to cadavy.net slash blog tutorial, blog tutorial, that's all one word, to find my step-by-step guide on starting your very own blog. That's cadavy.net slash blog tutorial. I can't wait to see what you create. This idea of amb- ambition being counterproductive reminds me of something I was, I was just writing kind of a little meditation yesterday about the word hustle. You know, yeah. I hear these entrepreneurs talking about, oh, I'm hustling. And there's all these podcasts and blogs talking about hustling. And, and I, it just yeah. strikes me as like, um, well, I feel bad for those people, you know, because like it seems like it's just, it's just this this overcompensation for insecurity type of thing to proclaim that you're hustling. Um, well, but you're you're also trying to figure out how the world works. So I think I think you know if you're you know you're if you're 26 years old and living in my living in New York City or San Francisco and just play in London, and you're just trying to get on in the, in the world. I mean that's fine. Well, yeah, and I, um, and I and I get that too. Is that is that like it's really hard to make something in the world that matters and that people will pay attention to. And, you know, when you say, when you say you're hustling, like, okay, that, that maybe helps you get through that. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. And you, and you look at somebody and I mean, God bless him. He's a friend of mine, a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk, who's like a social media rock star. And he's got a big agency and he works in New York. Sure. But, you know, he's up at five and he, he works till midnight. He's always on and he loves it. But it wouldn't be for me. I, I wouldn't want to 
miss our family time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wouldn't want to miss that. And I, I wouldn't want to be, you know, answering tweets for my fans while having dinner with my daughter. I mean, that's something that I, I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, as somebody who it appears that you're really driven to create, um, when you, you know, got married and started a family and everything, was that something that you figured would, you would do someday or did you think you would always, oh, always be well, just creating I, I, all the time? I always wanted a family. I always wanted a family. I was, uh, on my own and, uh, it took me a while to get one, but here I am. Uh, no, I I, uh, I always wanted a family. I always thought family life was nice, you know. I like all that boring family stuff, you know. I like going to take my daughter to the park and the pram, and, you know. Yeah. We go out for dinner, we go to, you know, P.F. Chang, and, you know, you know usual, usual, I guess you call it usual bourgeois suburban stuff, you know. I like it. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, but it's, If I wanted to do something else, I would have done it by now, or would be, or would be doing it already. If that makes any sense? You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't feel like you. You so, don't feel like oh, I have to make creative compromises that aren't aren't worth it, so I can. No, no. Well, well, no. The thing is, I've always I've always looked at my job as a job. So I, you know, I have work hours. I go to work. I come back from work, same as anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like. You know, I'm not going to put my life on hold, my family on hold, in case I come up with like one little cartoon that gets like 14 likes on Facebook or whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, going back you know, to the uh, to like the philosophical stuff, I was wondering, are there any were there any philosophers or authors or artists that inspired your worldview? Oh boy! Oh boy! I'm sure it's a big, uh, big question. Well, boy. Well, I mean, it's, there's authors and people I really like. You know, I never really had authors and artists and people like that say, "I want, I want, I want to be that guy." You know, what I mean, I always felt like I wanted my own thing. I never wanted to be like, "Oh, if only I was born forty years earlier, I could have been Andy Warhol." I, I have no none of that stuff going on. No. Uh, there's a guy called Ronald Searle, a great cartoonist from English cartoonist from the mid century, who's just Tremendous, and I always wanted to be as good as him. I never will, but that's okay. Um, there was a guy called Saul Steinberg. So I worshipped the Sox so until I read his biography and found out what a dreadful man he was in person. So kind of tainted that for me. Um, uh, I always like I always like the kind of New York school painters like you know Jackson Pollock, and uh, he's not my favorite, but like William de Kooning is a big favorite painter of mine. Uh, Ashil Gorky's a favorite painting of mine. Um, I guess I like that kind of like post-war New York modernist people. I always like those people. Right. Uh, but, but by the time I arrived, that that era was so far beyond, behind me. There's no way I want to be one of those people because that world doesn't exist anymore. So I was, um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of great writers. I, I find the classics actually have a lot more oomph to them. Like, uh, Tolstoy's great. Dostoevsky's great. George Eliot wrote a book called Middle Barch in the 1870s. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Um, you know, uh, Shakespeare's tremendous. Uh, I like reading 
uh, Decline the Fall of Roman Empire is an amazing book. You know, so I like classics, I guess. I think I like the uh, the firmament of, of the the past allows me to kind of go off in my own direction because you know I'm kind of grounded. I'm not like you know I don't I don't I don't really care what heroin addicts in Brooklyn are writing about right now. You know, <laughs> or whatever whatever the trendy whatever the whatever the MFAs from Oakland are writing about. I don't care. Well. I mean, yeah. if you find, I find this is as much as I like try to examine life and, and write about it. And I, and then when I do go back and read a philosopher or, uh, some old lit- literature, I just find that like, wow, everybody pretty much had all of life figured out or as, as figured it out as you, you could have it like 2000 years ago. And so, yeah, or yeah. with occasional bumps, like, you know, people like Montaigne or, uh, you know, what's his name, David Hume or uh, Montaigne being kind know. of like the, the, um, the first personal essayist. Yeah. Or, you know, people like Mark Twain, you know, Mark Twain's tremendous as well, but it's like, uh, yeah, well, I don't think the, the, the human condition has changed much in the last, uh, 2000 years. I mean, right. Um, if not, we wouldn't find Game of Thrones so interesting. <laughs> right. And, I, and I've been studying a lot about like, uh, mythology and the, um, the sort Jeff of template, template yeah, the templates of story that, that are kind of programmed into all of us that we respond to. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, oh, I love Joseph Campbell. Uh, I think you can kind of, uh, run in trouble with that when you're trying to like, Take it too literally, maybe. How about uh, how about like Camille Paglia or Paglia, whatever her name is, uh, sexual persona? She's great. As well. She's great as well. Um, Haven't checked it yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, too. yeah, she has a uh, book called Sexual Persona. Okay, the, the Campbell book that I Camille. that I've scanned is uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, well, that that's a big one. Uh, he did a really great series of interviews. Well, there's the power of myth. Yeah, that's in book Bill four. Yeah, yeah. And then there's another one. Oh God, I can't remember his name. There's another one. He on uh, a radio show 20, 30 years ago that are tremendous as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, yeah. You kind of you want to kind of you know what is what part of my or what part of my life is archetypal? You know, wh- where am I? You know, when you're like 21, 22, and you're first getting into this stuff, you know, and you're, you're doing something that seems pretty significant, and you kind of go, well, is this significant, or is this fleeting and silly, and am I just wasting my time? Uh, <laughs> and it's quite good to, to, when you realize that people had the same question 2,000 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, whatever. Yeah, when, when, you, start to see the, when you start to see the themes and, and sort of the story template then it actually helps you see better in your life like okay where is where's my call how am i rejecting my call where's my journey where am i um like a i don't know if it's like a messenger or somebody who's helping you along your guardian angel yeah but i I think i think you you, you can see that looking back i I think it's quite hard to see it in real time if that makes any sense Mm mm-hmm yeah, but my friend John T. Younger had a great thing. He said he had he had a very interesting bohemian life when he was younger. 
kind of crazy. Bohemian, very, very, very fringe. Did you say Jonathan Younger? No, John C. Unger. John C. Unger, okay. He's a sculptor, He's a sculptor actually, but he used to be a poet. And he had this great idea that he had to live this very fringe life and then write about it while he's having this life and that, you know, make, make a career out of it somehow. But the trouble is, he, was, he couldn't write about it at the same time. And he, and he said, well, it's really hard to make it turn this into a story while you're living it because you don't know when the story actually ends. Because it's still going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> what, where, where, the, where does the, you know, where, 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 do you, where do you end the story, you know? Because do you end it now? Do you end it last week? Do you end it in a year from now? You know, it's quite hard to shape the story when it's all just happening. Well, the, the way that the story ends helps you find the, the thread or the contours that you actually bring to light in a story. Because if you're going to tell your life story, you can't just write about every single thing that happens. You have to write with some sort of structure to it. And in order to define that structure, you have to have, it helps to have some idea of how it ends. Maybe that's what, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. So I'm interested in, in hearing about this, this consulting business, you know, you, you, you became known for your cartoons and your writing, you wrote a few books and now you, you're, you're actually helping like corporate entities with, Cultural yeah, things, well, we, we, well, what well, it'd be hard for me to talk about the entire business of the consulting because I'm not a, I'm not really qualified. I, I you know I'm more of the art side of it. Gotcha. But um, basically, what what happens for 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 sake of argument, you know, a company is only as good as its culture. If that makes any sense, right? Yes. The trouble, the, the trouble with cultures is they're filled with people, and the trouble with people is they're dreadful things. <laughs> you know, not really, but you know, people are difficult. People are messy. You know, so so if you can help the culture work together, improve the culture, even by a small percentage point, you can create a lot of value very quickly. And so we we. Uh, try to design programs that help people inside companies uh, change their behaviors and, you know, and motivational arts part of that. That's kind of what I do. Mm-hmm. It, that's all I do, but that's a big part, you know, kind of ways of kind of signaling ideas and behaviors to people in a way that's very kind of easy to digest and has a high, uh, has a, a low rejection rate. sense. I mean, it's interesting because it feels like in the early 2000s, you kind of dropped this atom bomb of, of uh, counterculture or counter corporate culture. And I think gave a lot of people bravery to go out on their own and do their own things and to work according to their own values. And now that's seeped into becoming like a requirement. If you want to, if you want to employ talented people, you have to have the that sort of value system, um, yeah. In your yeah, DNA. you have to get, yeah. You have to you, you want you want self starters in your organization, and you can't. There's not much good to you dead, <laughs> you know. There's not much good to you beaten down. You know what I mean? You have to empower them. It it ties into something I remember reading one of your books about that. Uh, you know, consumers haven't gotten more demanding. They've gotten more demanding as spiritual enti- entities. Right, right. Because 
Well, things we already got enough stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Definitely. we're not, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not materially that much more comfortable than we were a generation ago. You know, I mean, we still eat same kind of food. I mean, a bit more exotic, but you know, we eat nice food and we sleep in warm beds and we live in nice houses and we drive nice cars. You know, and uh, okay, we spend too much time online, but apart from that, life hasn't changed that much. Um, you know, and you know, it's like, you know, we, we buy, uh, we buy a lot of seltzer in this house, you know, or a 12 pack every couple of days. Well, that Mr. Seltzer salesman, he's pretty much sold my family all that he's going to sell me because that's how much I drink. I'm not going to drink anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already have enough stuff. I have enough clothes. I have enough furniture. I have enough, a lot of stuff like that. I have all, I have all the stuff I need, but what I need more time is, you know, would you, more time with my daughter, more time to travel, more time to travel, see, see my family, more time in New York City, you know, what Tony Robbins would call significance. And I had this idea that uh, one of the great byproducts of work is significant, and you can offer that to your, your employers, your employees. Uh, then you have a competitive advantage over the employees that do not. Yeah, meaning we. I mean, I had uh, Dan Ariely on this this podcast. He's a behavioral scientist who's yeah. studying about the way that meaning changes motivation. They did a study where, by giving people a, a bonus, um, Intel actually lost five percent of productivity by giving a monetary bonus versus versus getting a note from the boss that said you got a good job or even better yet sending pizza to their to their house so that they look like a winner in front of their family right 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 yeah uh, i mean you look at uh you know the best soldiers in the world one of the most highly paid soldiers in the world uh, you know you look at the french foreign legion the, the pay is terrible the foreign legion is like fifteen hundred dollars a month well, then you've got then you've got what uh, you know. I mean, Machiavelli talks about that in in The Prince about hiring mercenaries and how you you know you can't really trust them because you just hired them to do your war for you and and it takes more than that to motivate them. If I remember it right, yeah, and, and yeah, and also they might just take your all the stuff they did for you. They might just take it over to the other side. You know exactly. And there was also something you had in there about uh, the um, sort of the evolution of capital where we started with human capital and it became physical capital and it became economic and and intellectual and now we're an expressive capital. Emotional capital. Yeah, expressive capital, which is something I wrote 14 years ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. what I call expressive capital, yeah, allows us to express ourselves. I mean, I think it's it's right on. I feel like work has to move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's just exactly right. what you're talking yeah. about is that yeah. you get your basic needs met and then, and then you, our, our demands evolve. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, I would have loved to have been the next whoever, you know, the next Seth Godin, the next Tom Peters, the next this or that. And, uh, and now I'm older, I don't really care <laughs> because I, I moved up, a, I guess I moved up a kind of, I kind of moved up a level, I suppose. I mean, I, I mean, we all do. I'm not, I'm not special. I think you just, 
you know, stuff that's so important to you when you're 25 is as important to you 10 years later. Yeah, it changes. 20 years later. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, you know, 20 years ago, I just wanted the girls to notice me. <laughs> 10 years ago, I wanted the world to rec- notice me, and, you know. But now I want the work to matter more. It's kind of like it doesn't really have to, I don't really have to be part of it. I just want it to matter somehow. I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's just kind of, you know, it's just, I want the work to be, it doesn't matter like, ooh, you know, oh, you changed my life, yada, yada, yada. But more of a, I want it to be relevant in the real world. I don't want it to just be, you know, yeah. I want some kind of, I want some kind of, not necessarily application, but I want it to be probably what I live in, not some kind of utopian fantasy thing I'm doing. You know, I mean, there's a lot of idealism in my work, but I don't want it to be all idealism in that same sense. Yeah, I want it to be kind of, I want there to be grit to it as well. Yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, but, but I think we all have that. We all have that. I mean, I'm not saying anything different. I think we all... You know, I think we all want, uh, you know, we all want our work to, kind of, we all want to live in the world we live in. We all want to, you know, we all, <laughs> we all want to be out on cloud two land our whole lives. Mm-hmm. A few people do, but I do, I do not. So it's, uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, you're always kind of, uh, shall we say, when you, when you, when you talk about the word meaning, you're always renegotiating what that actually means. If that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, so it changes throughout your life and yeah, there's different things you want and, at different times. And there's no, there's no, you're always looking for a final answer and that's kind of very futile. Like, you know, uh, but, but you know, but it's, it's a dialogue, you know, so it's, uh, but you know, I'm at an age, you know, where a lot of my, a lot of my people I went to school with have already given up, you know, <laughs> they're just trying to, you know, they've, I don't say they all given up, but a lot of people have, you know, because they just never quite followed their bliss, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and that happens, you, you know, you, you, I think you get, you get very distracted by life. The question is for how long for though? You know, I've wait there was like a decade of my life where I think I wasted, but you know. But hey, better a decade than a lifetime, I suppose. What was the part that you feel like you wasted? Was that when you were in advertising? No, well no, not at first, but there's a when my when my advertising career started to flounder. Well I started to flounder emotionally with it till I till I kinda of found you know, to, between that and gave him voice. So we're talking about the '90s, really. The, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, the especially the later half of the '90s. Let's say, like, say, uh, uh, yeah, I had, I think, in like 2001 to 2004 are pretty painful for me. They're probably the most painful years. But you know, I was, those were the definite wilderness years for me. But you know, I think we all have them. You know. Your work was so, online, but it maybe wasn't picking up uh, the steam, yeah, and then yeah. it did, and then 2004. That's yeah, when I discovered but your work. I mean, 
Yeah. Me and thousands and thousands of other people. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it it kind of, yeah, but then like Facebook came along, everything kind of changed, you know what I mean? It kind of, everything just became a big old gumbo, nothing really. (laughs) Yeah. They won't, they won't go to your blog. You got to like catch them while they're scanning their their yeah. newsfeed or something that's one of the things i love about podcasts though is that you, at least you get to be in somebody's ear and like you're, you're really having a conversation with them and it's like this intimate thing where you can yeah um well really that's what i like about newsletters we, you know gabe and boyd has a newsletter we love that because they want to be there you know what i mean mm-hmm. right because there's permission and, marketing yeah it's a higher higher barrier for entry and that's kind of more meaningful engagement i suppose mm-hmm. um you know it's uh that's something that i think about when when i hear people saying like oh you got to be on snapchat and all this stuff and i and i kind of wonder like well how much do i really want the two seconds of attention from somebody who who doesn't have much attention to spare thus they're on snapchat not that it's a totally useless medium it's just that does that mean that I should be there just because there's a ton of people who are taking info snacks? Yeah. And also like, uh, you know, I, I used to help a friend of mine who's a tailor with a blog, you know, he's a world-class tailor, very famous. And I helped him with his blog. Yeah, I remember and that, he, yeah. you know, and, uh, I told him, well, you know, you should blog some more. And he wasn't blogging enough. I thought, <laughs> And he said, yeah, well, if I do that, well, I might sell one or more, more suits, but for every blog post I do, that's not the 300 emails I get. <laughs> I want to deal with it. Uh, I'm already busy with my suits. I already have plenty of customers. One or two suits is going to make a difference. But 300 emails is going to make a difference and not a good one. So I felt like, wow, this guy had like peak fame. You know what I mean? He had all the fame he needed to do his job. You know what I mean? It wasn't very. It wasn't very many people either. I mean, I think you know he had. I think his his blog had a readership of about you know a couple of thousand people. But you know he's a guy who only make a couple hundred suits a year, maybe one hundred, two hundred suits a year. So you know, you know he didn't need that many readers. And I quite like that that he reached peak fame because you know when you think of like somebody like like uh, our friend Donald Trump or uh, Madonna who just cannot have enough ever. Under any circumstances. <laughs> well, Tyson says, I remember something that really resonated with me was when you said that uh, humans don't scale and, and Larry Ellison may yeah. have millions of times more money than you do, but he's, he's not going to live millions of times longer. He's not going to see millions more sunsets, et cetera. Yeah. 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 He's going to have only, yeah, the, the stuff that matters. He doesn't, he doesn't quite, you know, I mean, I mean, how many... How many good barbecue? How much? How much good barbecue you can eat one in, in the year? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's something. I remember somebody saying, you know, it's funny about you happiness. Imagine how blissed out Bill Gates would be all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, just imagine how ecstatic. Yeah, you'd just be like, you, you, <laughs> and to be that happy. Also, if you're that blissed out all the time, imagine how exhausted you'd be all the time. You know, being blissed out is very, it requires a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, so is, is there, um, I think we've talked about a lot of really interesting stuff today. Is there any sort of like final message or, or bow that you would put on all of what we've uh, talked about today? Boy, 
Boy, do I have any? Well, I wish I did. It's not like I have. I, I mean, uh, yeah. Let me, let me, let me, uh, let me uh, do. You... Well, the first thing I'd like to say is, uh, you know, Gate and Boyd started with a blog and started with little business card doodles. But I mean, you know, I, it's a whole team now. It's not just me. Uh, it's just my business partner, Jessica, Laura, David. You know. Yeah, we have a we have a lot of partners we work with, um, and it's a whole consultancy. That's and go check out gapeandboy.com because that's uh, that's uh, that's you know that that's something that's kind of interesting. On my more personal note, I, I do my random do my random my business card doodles at hughcards.co. Co. Hughcards.co. And that's why I just do my random doodles and you can go see them there. You can just see them on the Instagram at Hugh Cards. Um, I think, I think um, when we talk about creativity, yes, you want it to be original and useful. That's what creative means. You know, something original and useful. Um, but I think it becomes more enriching not when you show off how clever you are and how talented you are and how wonderful you are, but when you actually start realizing that what you do changes lives, that serves people, that you see it as, a, as your creativity as a form of public service, not as a way of getting kudos. If you, if you see it as a giving act rather than a way of you know, meeting girls or whatever, then it gets much more powerful. And I think that's, that's something I'm kind of realizing, you know, you know, looking back over the last, you know, 30 years. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's perfect. Cause you, you definitely gave me something like yeah, you know, I was that, sitting in that cubicle in Nebraska and I like needed some, 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 some encouragement that, that the way that I saw the world, somebody else saw it that way yeah. and had been there and, and could push me along. And you realize, you realize you're not alone. You know what I mean? And, and that's, uh, and that's a, well, that's a, you know, that's a trouble with, you know, once you get, you know, quote unquote famous as you're, you're, <laughs> it isolates you, you know what I mean? I mean, and all of a sudden you, you, you miss, you, you don't feel, you disconnect with the people, I think, when you become famous because everybody, you know, everybody's just like look, looking for your top 10 list or what, you know, what what can I get from you? Whereas I think before you're discovered, before you hit the big time, your stuff is actually probably more valuable. Right. <laughs> because you're, you're, you're actually sharing yourself, you know, just like sharing your brand. If that makes any sense. Yeah. The more successful you get, the less of a self, less of a person you become, the more a brand you become, and that's kind of. I mean, you look at a. Uh, a friend of mine, I love the pieces. He's a great guy, but poor old Tim Ferriss. The guy can't go to a coffee shop without being bugged by somebody, no yeah. matter how well-meaning. You know, I'd probably bug him if I saw him in a coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm just like. And then you have that whole like brand thing, you know, brand Tim or whoever, it doesn't matter who it is. So, you know, you have to be interesting for a living and that's supposed to be ter- terribly, terribly, terribly tiring. 
Yeah. You know, not being able to go see a movie by yourself without like some, you know, without some fanboy trying to, you know, interrupt your conversation with your friend. You know what I mean? Um, so I think, but, but to be fair, I mean, what he does is tremendous. He's a great guy. Uh, and I wish I would, I just don't care that much about productivity as he does. So I, I don't think, I'm, I'm not going to steal business away from him. Right. <laughs> he, he cares about, he cares about, he cares about outputs way more than I do. Right. I, I just, I just think if you work hard, they happen. I don't have to measure them so much. Uh, or I don't measure them as thoroughly as he does anyways. Um, but yeah, I think, I think once you're, once your, your creativity turns a corner into service, when you're actually helping people and that's the main motivation, I think it, it has a certain power to it that if you're just trying to, you're trying to prove to the world that you have the chops, that you have the ability, that you have the talent, that's fine too. But I think you have to go beyond that and, and actually serve people. And I think that's where, where the game gets interesting. Great. I think that's a perfect message uh, to wrap up our conversation today. So, Okay. Uh, again, thank you so much for everything that you've done to to motivate yeah. and inspire me, and uh, of course for coming on the show to uh, to share your gift with everybody else too. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, I had a fun time, so I hope I hope it comes out well in the edit. So there you go. Absolutely. Love your work is supported in part by Treehouse. Take your career to the next level and learn from over 1,000 videos created by expert teachers on web design, coding, business, and much more. Claim your free 14-day free trial at cadavy.net slash treehouse. You'll be supporting the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hugh McLeod. You can get his books, Ignore Everybody, at cadavy.net slash ignore and Evil Plans at cadavy.net slash evil. Ignore Everybody, by the way, is based upon that How to Be Creative PDF that had such a big influence on me so many years ago. Now, how do I think about doing original work? A few episodes back, I told you that I would be on Noah Kagan's new podcast, Noah Kagan Presents. It turns out that the episode wasn't quite out yet, but now it is. So go listen to it. Just go to okdork.com slash podcast or search for Noah Kagan Presents, wherever it is that you get your podcasts and listen to that episode. And if you appreciate all the work that goes into making this show, there are a couple of ways you can help support it. One is to subscribe, 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 subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just hit the subscribe button. Another is to rate the show on iTunes. Just go to cadavy.net slash iTunes and click on write a review and click on the star rating. You don't even have to write a review. It just takes a couple of seconds. And do you like books? If you do, I'd love to send you my book recommendations. About 90% of them will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to cadavy.net slash reading, sign up, and you'll get my first set of recommendations right away. You'll be supporting the show if you buy any of those books through the links in the email. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for the show is More Streets, performed by Spider Flower. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.